So welcome to the engineering room. My name is Dave Farley and welcome to the Continuous Delivery Channel. Uh, we deliver content on software engineering and topics related to it. And this engineering room episode is part of a regular series, which we're going to be providing monthly, where we talk to interesting, influential people from our industry. Um, so uh, I, I'd like to begin by introducing my guest for today. Randy is, well, is a well-known conference speaker and a senior technical leader with a background working in many large, sometimes famous Silicon Valley companies, including Google, WeWork, eBay, uh, uh, and many others. Randy currently works as VP of Engineering and Chief Architect at eBay. My first memory of Randy was seeing him uh, deliver a keynote uh, at QCon London on the topic of delivering great software at kind of web monster scale. Uh, but since then, we've met several times and I've always found Randy to be a delightful company and always interesting to talk to. So it's with great pleasure that I welcome Randy Shep to the engineering room. Great. Oh, thanks, Dave. Uh, wow, what a great introduction and uh, so excited to be with you. Um, Really a big admirer, big admirer of your channel as we were chatting beforehand. I've watched every episode uh, and just loving it, loving every one of it. So for those of you that are not yet subscribers, hit subscribe and like, because uh, uh, this is a great, a great channel to uh, be a part of. Great. Thank you very much. So, so you, you've you spent a lot of your career working, as far as I can see, in big, complex web companies. So I'm interested in exploring your views on what software development looks like when nearly everything that you do is at scale and under the stress of millions of users. But I also don't want to jump in with both feet into the middle of that conversation. Um, so I, I thought an interesting place to start was I, I saw one of your talks where you described uh, the different needs of architecture and design at different points in the life cycle of a product. Um, and in it, as a site, Kind of as a side remark, you said that you thought that in startup mode, you think that a monolith is best. While I agree with that completely, <laughs> I think that it might surprise some people. So could you explain why you think that's the case? Yeah, oh, I 100% agree with that. And I love starting small because like every place that's big was once small. Uh, and I'm sure we'll talk about all the places that are big, some of which I've gotten a chance to work at, work at most of which I haven't, uh, all evolved from something small. So uh, every place evolved from a monolith. So yeah, so when you're, the way I like to think about it is there's sort of, uh, I change the phrasing every so often, but like there's a startup mode where like I have an idea and I'm looking for a, uh, looking for a business model, trying to find product market fit. And there, what you're trying to do is iterate really fast. So what you're not interested in is scale because uh, your team is small and you don't even really know what the pro like the bounds of your problem. You don't have your to think to say domain driven design. You haven't like been able to bound any of your context, if that makes sense. So um, so 100% start with a monolith. Uh, that's because you haven't by by starting with a monolith, you haven't pre-decided <laughs> the subcomponents of your of your system, right? Like you haven't already because you don't necessarily know. Uh, your system to start with. Um, so I recommend in the 95, 99% case, 
uh, people that are just starting out with, with a project or just starting out with an entire company um, that you 100% start with a monolith. And that is true of every one of the big companies. You know, eBay started as a monolith. So did Netflix. So did Twitter. Uh, you know, every place that you can think of, wow, they're really web scale. They all started uh, as a small monolith. So, yeah. Yeah, it's, 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 it's that period of kind of exploring the problem. I, I, I'm increasingly... Uh, of the view that working kind of defensively in terms of design and architecture so that we are give ourselves the freedom to find out where our decisions are wrong and and to you know, and to change them later is important but also as as you point out that need to in the early days when you really got no clue is to be able to iterate really quickly so that you can learn fast really yeah the, the easiest place to the easiest way to learn quickly is like everything's in a single repo uh i can do everything with refactoring tools with my entire yeah you know with my entire system essentially because it's just one thing um and uh it's, it's super easy the other thing is you do not have any of the problems of that you know, services or microservices or event-driven architectures solve. Like all those things, like I'm huge fans of all those things and where I am now, and I will get there. <laughs> like we absolutely need microservices and event-driven architecture and all those fancy techniques. Uh, we couldn't be large without them, but the problems that those things solve, you don't have when you're a tiny startup iterating fast, trying to find product market fit and just meeting the needs of your, of your near-term customers. Um, the other obvious thing is like, performance right so like all calls are local <laughs> so you don't you don't introduce any network inside there uh it's easy to roll out and roll back because there's one you know uh unit um the artifact um so yeah super you know 100 the right thing to do and honestly i mean we started with the startup but like i think 90 percent of the uh, uh software on the uh, on the planet really should be done in a, in a monolith and it's the exceptional uh, once you're in what I like to call the growth phase or the scaling yeah. phase, uh, then you start to see the problems with the monolith, which I'm sure we'll talk about. And then this, then you can start to, you know, leverage into the other architectural solutions uh, for those um, and then going from there. But, you know, it's an S curve and like only when you're at the, <laughs> you know, yeah. the, the concave down part of the S do you start to uh, really need to move from a monolith to something like microservices. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I spent I spent some time last week with uh, with with our mutual friend Martin Thompson, um, and we were in a pub in in Belfast, uh, bemoaning the fact that nearly all projects these days seem to start with Kubernetes and separate repos for everything. And you're going, it's not a good place to start. Not a good place to start. Uh, spoiler alert: eBay is exactly Kubernetes with tons of repos, but uh, but and you're not starting. <laughs> we're not starting. Yeah, we got 27 years behind us and 4,000 engineers. So yeah, yeah, no, 100. percent you know, it's great. I love to read like, well, what does Google do? What, you know, what does Facebook do? Uh, what, do you, what do Baidu and Tencent and, uh, you know, ByteDance do? Uh, and that's interesting, but it's not, it's a very small percentage <laughs> of the industry that has, you know, the, the kind of hyperscale problems. And so, yeah. So, 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 so if, if you'll forgive me being kind of um, philosophical and esoteric for a minute. So, so, that, that that leads me to be thinking in terms of you know I'll be interested in your views on architecture, what you think architecture is, and what it gives us. You know, if it's 
if it's not just about looking at eBay or Google and saying, oh, we'll do what they're doing because that make, that helps. What is it then? Yeah, I mean, it's one of those like, uh, um, yeah, like, you know, when you see it, uh, I mean, <laughs> we've done a couple of interviews where, you know, like with, uh, with Simon Brown and others where we tried to explore the topic of what is architecture. And I don't know, I have much to add to that. I mean, there's architecture is the hard decisions. Um, I like to think of it as that it's like, I mean, my mental model is it's the skeleton, uh, you know, of the overall system within which we, you know, uh, place stuff. Um, and um, yeah, so but, but what it's for, it's a, I, my mind is saying tool, but there's I'm sure a better word, like it's just a means to an end. Like there's nothing magical about the architecture. There's no, yeah. I mean, this is, is there's no one right architecture there are architectures that are good and not good at you know startup scale growth scale <laughs> hyper growth you know hyper scale um uh but you know there's no there's no one ar right architecture for everything and um and so uh, i i would just suggest that it's whatever makes your job easier doing your work and mm -hmm. the one thing that i would add to the discussions i've been listening to is over time, your architecture is likely to change. If you should be so lucky as to like grow into the growth scale, growth phase, and you know hyperscale phase, you absolutely are going to change your architecture. In some cases, five different times. Like that's what we did at eBay. I can tell you that trajectory. Um, so it's totally legitimate to do that. Um, but what what is true at every scale is you are going to be changing your software. So what makes it easy to change your software? Yeah, yeah, and. Uh, what makes it safe to change your software? So, you know, continuous delivery practices, you know, test driven development and, you know, trunk based development, all those things like absolutely yes. Um, but also, what is it about the structure of the system that like matches the problem? Yes. Right? Matches the problem is uh, isomorphic to the problem, like makes it makes it fluid and easy to uh, make changes because the there's less impedance mismatch between the problem you're trying to solve and the the thing you're trying to do and just as a like as an example uh you know again ebay started as a as a monolith so like everything about buying and selling was all in like one ugly process you know 3.4 million lines of code in a single isapi dll uh for our version two of the service um but then but then you could imagine that the next iteration could have been something like well buying's over here selling's over here and you know you could naturally like cleave the cleave the domain into two uh two things and you can again imagine i never worked for you know uber or grab or lyft or one of those things mm -hmm. but you could imagine starts as a monolith and then like just naturally cleaves into driver side rider side you know like yeah. you know, as you're as you Think about what's a good architecture for wherever you are it's just does it match like very naturally the domain that you're working in i guess i would say yeah yeah i i i, I can't work out whether my views are because you know I'm, I'm i'm a grumpy old man and i'm starting to just see the world from you know from a narrower perspective or or whether what i believe is that I think that we are coalescing into something that's the clearer direction. I, I think I can see routes that are more repeatable. And I th you said that in the presentation that that you went through. You you talked about similar 
the one that I referred to earlier, you talked about similar trajectories for nearly all of the big web shops. You know, they started off, they started off simply with these, these simple things. And then they go through these, these almost well-recognizable stages of architectural choices to meet their business needs at that point. And, you know, I, I think, you know, we, you know, I, I liked your, your presentation because it laid it out so clearly. I'll put a link in the, in the description of the video afterwards but um but i i, I think that um i think that that's i'm coming to the conclusion that, that there are there are lots of these kinds of ideas my, my book on modern software engineering is about some of those principles if you'll forgive me advertising it i see you're laughing <laughs> but but i think it's trying to get to some of those principles which are um you know, fairly deep <laughs> advertising on my behalf. Thank you. <laughs> I owe you a beer. <laughs> but I, I think it's it's getting us to some of these things that are more profound, more repeatable, more patterns, if you like, that we can apply to the develop the software development at different levels that are going to give us a chance of a better job. So you know, jump, you know, applying the wrong pattern in the wrong context is obviously not going to work very well. But, you know, you get the right pattern for the right context and life's going to be easier. Yeah, let me, um, I 100% agree on what you're saying. And let me come at it to convince ourselves, like from an entirely different, from an entirely different perspective, if that makes sense. All of software is just about solving business and customer problems. I mean, this is an obvious statement, but like, I don't think we say it enough to ourselves and we certainly yeah. don't act like, <laughs> right? The only, our only job, <laughs> as engineers is to solve customer and business problems. Yes. Now let's put our job and just put architecture in there. So the architecture that we use to do that is entirely to solve business problems. Yes. And so what does that mean? It means, you know, so back to what I was saying before, like it should match our domain in a very natural way. Uh, and it should make it really easy for us to evolve over time uh, you know, uh, in, in response to those customer needs. So every time I see, and I've been a part of these too, every time I've been, I, I see these like generic conversations about software architecture, I'm like, y'all missed the problem statement. Yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, apart from the, I mean, and what's, what's uncomfortable is that like everybody's problem state, like everybody's particular customers in particular domain is different. So it's hard to say general stuff, you know, maybe. Um, but I think, I think you can never go wrong with starting from what's the view of the world of the customer. In other words, yep. what's their domain <laughs> and, you know, domain driven design and like use that as the, as the like um, organizing force for, for your architecture. And if it meets what your customers need, it's the great architecture. And if it is offset, you know, if it goes in a different direction, if it, if it like doubles down on dimensions of problems you don't have, like, yeah. right. Like trying to solve scale problems, yes. uh, or high performance problems, right? Like, you know, with all the LMAX stuff, the stories that you tell all the time, like that is awesome. And also that's a 0.001% of the, you know, this it's at, you know, that yeah. level of, you know, microsecond uh, performance is a 0.001% kind of problem. And that's not dismissive. That's just like reality. Yeah, <laughs> so, yeah. Yeah. It, it, it wouldn't, yeah, it, it, it wouldn't be, it wouldn't, it wouldn't be worth, um, I don't know some, some somebody doing you know a web app for their mom's cake shop to to be doing performance testing like we did that would be that would be ludicrous. <laughs> or to be frank, we do performance testing for us all the time, but we yeah. don't measure it at microsecond scale because yeah, yeah. The, our customers are humans. <laughs> yeah, yeah. humans. Uh -huh. 
work at you know tens of milliseconds, not at not at not at single digit microseconds. And so, absolutely, you know, for, for us, you know, I love the disruptor pattern and all the the techniques you you all discovered and invented, uh, and also. Uh, you know, when I have that problem, I know I can go reach for it, but, um, but I don't, I don't have those problems, right. Even though I'm at big scale, like I don't have, I don't have that kind of problem. So, yeah. uh, anyway, so yeah, sorry. Under just, you know, no, no, understand the problem that you're solving, like as a business, your customers, and then for the most part, your architecture can just flow from that. And, you know, again, uh, yeah. And then, and then, like you say, as you, as your customer, particularly for like web scale consumer oriented things like, you know, the Googles, the Netflixes, the Ebays, the Amazons, they all have co-evolved in the same direction because yeah. the problems are super similar. Yeah. Right. Um, you know, again, everybody started as Amazon too, started as a monolith and, uh, you know, over, over time that got creaky and horrible and, you know, broke up into uh, individual services, a small set, then more and more and more and more. And I don't know Amazon now, but let's, I'm imagining it's in the order 10,000 services. You know, eBay did the same trajectory, start as a monolith uh, in our version two of our software. Version three was uh, break up into Java mini applications, I'll call it. So about 200 different applications, each that kind of directly take parts of the site, you know, buying, selling, search, payment, et cetera. Mm-hmm. Um, and then now it's 4,500 or so different, you know, services and applications that are, that are at smaller granularity. And again, Netflix did the same trajectory. Twitter did the same trajectory, um, et cetera. So, 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 so the, so, so if I can replay what I think, I, I, I think you were saying is that customer focus is all, of course, I, I, I think, I think we definitely agree with that just as a sidebar one of one of the 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 commonest pieces of advice advice that i give to my clients who i have i'm helping to adopt continuous delivery in the engineering practices that i talk about is is to fix the requirements process because nearly all of the requirements processes are trying to do kind of programming by remote control expressing technical ideas rather than focusing on the customer outcome and and what you know what the software is really for which is You know, if we don't get that into our thinking, into our optimization, you know, for everybody, then we're probably not going to do as good a job. Um, yeah. But but the, but the other thing, coming back to what what I I think you were saying, so so we um, led by the customer, but the the, the thing the things the, the principles that I I, I also think is, is that I think there are some fair fundamentals that just keep the doors open. So when it comes time to make the move, you know, to the next stage or whatever that might be, whichever direction you might be taking, it's just going to be a little bit easier. Yeah. Yeah. So um, if that's a if that's a dot, dot, dot that I can fill in. Yeah. Um, so I'd love I'd love your thoughts. Let's go back and forth on this. But off the top of my head, the um, uh, with some consideration, how can I make my monolith more easily like scalable? Right. Yeah. So think about it as modules or components. Right. So there are natural subdivisions within your monolith uh, and reify those in whatever the component model is of your favorite the language that you're using right so they're separate jars they're separate dlls they're shard libraries you know whatever um and uh the fact 
the fact that it's a monolith means it's when, it, when not if we make a mistake in, a, in our initial domain decomposition, we can easily change it with no with no big yeah. deal. Still having that have reifying that, that domain decomposition inside the code super helpful. Yeah, critical. Um, the best you know well structured monoliths, as Simon Brown would also say, I think it, it, you know put would put a lot of modules in there. Yeah. The other thing yeah. is. Um, really good monitoring of what's going on in the real world as it's as it's operated right and part of that is just like i want to understand how the system is behaving so i can look at where are the points of you know single points of failure you know performance bottlenecks etc but equally important maybe more important when we're in that kind of you know flatter part of the s curve or startup startup phase is uh, I want to understand user behavior, right? So there's there's a good amount of stuff I can do by like talking to customers, uh, which is great. We should definitely do that. Yeah. Um, there's a lot of stuff that the customers don't know that they <laughs> like don't can't can't say, yeah. or we can't talk to them for lots of other you know lots of reasons. Can't talk to them at scale. And so monitoring for usage hugely important. Again, that helps you figure out how to, you know, I I, I kind of say, oh well. You know, when you get there, you can natu it naturally cleaves into domains. And I've always found that, to be honest. Yes. Um, not because I think I'm lucky or, or really any good. It's just like, I think that's just the thing where like, as you get to a certain, you know, size, it's like, oh, it's kind of fractured. It's like a big boulder. Like it fractures along this, you know, this line fault here. Line. Yeah. It's a fault line. Exactly right. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Fault line software. Uh, although I think that implies, particularly in California, that implies that, you know. Yeah, yeah. Something else. No, 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 all good. Um, anyway, but uh, my point is that uh, really understanding customer behavior in a detailed way um, is a great way of seeing where the where the opportunities are. And then I know you know this, but like um, one of the great, the book that when I joined Google, everybody was encouraged to read was Michael Feathers uh, Working Effectively with Legacy Code. Yeah. And yeah. the there's so much great stuff in there. I just reread it about a year ago and it's, it's tremendous, uh, you know, whatever, 20 years old at least, but like yeah. still uh, just as fresh. Um, but the idea of a seam, so as you're, yeah. um, as you're, uh, you have this monolith and it's creaky and big um, and you want to figure out how to modularize it either within or like to, to, to um, uh, take something out is you, you're trying to look for and sometimes make a seam in your uh, inside there. And that's just a way of saying you're abstracting away information hiding yeah, one part of it from from the rest of it, with the with the goal of maybe potentially being able to you know move that out into its own you know separate process or service or whatever. Yeah, yeah, and I, absolutely. I, I'm 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 about due for a reread of Michael's book as well. It's a fantastic book. Uh, but but on that idea of of seams or fault lines. Yeah. Um, I, 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 in an earlier episode of the engineering room, I talked to Kevlin Henney, and one of the things that he said, which I really liked, was you know in, in in that phase where you're all kind of stood around a whiteboard and you're all kind of bouncing ideas around to understand the problem, he says as soon as somebody says we don't know about this bit, there's a seam, <laughs> there's a line, there's 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 a there's a there's there's a place to hide stuff because you don't know enough about it yet. Uh, and I thought I thought that was and I realized that's something that I did myself, but I'd never re thought about it in that way. Now I think about it in that way all the time. It's a really nice way of thinking about identity, you know, another way of identifying those things. I use the kind of bounded context stuff and domain driven design ideas and have done for um, versions of them for a very long time. Uh, yeah. But but um, but but 
but I, I liked that idea of, of kind of drawing a boundary between the stuff that you're sure about and the stuff that you're not. Because, right. because that does represent, you know, one of those joins somewhere. Exactly. Yeah. And um, not to introduce a new concept, but like the fact that you were able to get your job done and you were able to limit your cognitive load to some particular area of the code and not consider the rest of it. Again, yeah. I'm just reinforcing your point. Um, it that's that clear. So clearly there's, oh, I, I don't know anything about that payment part of it. Okay, great. Like that's <laughs> yeah, yeah. just a theme. I don't know anything about the, you know, how the inventory gets in there. Okay, great. That's another, that's yeah, yeah. another, yeah, 100%. That's really insightful, actually. Yeah, I I, I really liked that when uh, when he said it. I, I think there are a few of those kind of, if I think about it, there's a few of those kinds of rules of thumb. There's kind of Eric, Eric Evans stuff about, you know, uh, bounded context and so on, which is, which is an obvious st st starting point. I think one of the things that I came to believe fairly profoundly from from LMAX was a, a good set of default seams is between the accidental complexity and the essential complexity, which kind of reinforces some of Eric's stuff. You know, you, you want little bubbles of domain logic that aren't polluted by concerns of accidental complexity, really. Uh, and then, you know, then you've got this other stuff, this stuff about, you know, Kev, Kevlin stuff about, you know, the... Um, the bits that you're not so sure about or you're a little bit worried about and you'd like to just build a little wall between you and them and, and I, th I think if I think about it that's those those are all kind of you know realizing the sorts of principles that under, underpin the way that I think about design oh that's lovely yeah that's really great like I'm seeing I'm seeing it in my mind as two different dimensions right so there's yeah. one, one there's one dimension that divides the domains or the subdomains from each other in in that way that you know kevlin saw us help us to see yeah. and there's another vertical division between um the well, you you're calling it essential and accidental complexity another yeah. way to say it is the domain logic or the product logic and the platform and infrastructure yeah yeah yeah, yeah. surrounds it uh and and the and the you know random choice okay what database did we choose like are we running on kubernetes like all that yeah. stuff that should have nothing i mean from the does the customer care the customer yep. does not therefore yep. <laughs> you know that's another that's another part of it there's a third i don't want to flip out of this too quickly but no. it makes me um makes me also say there's a third element which is about asynchrony which is uh, yeah. and the way to think of the the another i think it's even a third dimension if i could if i can say it that way like does the does this operation need to be at the exact same moment as this other operation yeah right uh does do they need to be atomic right does there need to be a transaction around those things and most people when we're both old and grumpy like when we started every oh my gosh yes what are you talking about like yeah, you're, yeah. you're you're committing heresy by like not having everything be all transactional and then we started building big systems and it turns out well no actually this thing can happen over here and then just like the real world there's a little bit of delay while the event yeah. <laughs> you know gets propagated from point a to point b and then point b you know reacts to that in some eventually consistent way and um and that is the other unlock mental unlock as you're going up that as you're ascending that you know scaling curve yeah, absolutely have to be all the same uh, or all at the same time right so as an example as an obvious example in uh in ebay as i've used this particular example for 20 years um when somebody uh, when a seller comes onto the site and lists her item, mm -hmm. does that immediately have to show up 
in the search for buyers. Yeah. I mean, it'd be nice and like it only takes a second or two <laughs> because we work really hard on that. Uh, it's not okay to take eight hours, which it used to. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay, by the way, no scenario. Um, yeah. But if it's a second or two. That's not a big deal to anybody. Um, and the difference between it's immediate and it's a second or two is 10x of <laughs> hardware and hair pulling and uh you know and everything like that right yeah. and um and 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 the explosion in complexity so it's one one of the things uh, i i think this is probably one of my heresies that, that not, many, not many people agree with but another thing that i i came to believe from the lmax experience something that martin started saying as well i think he he, he kind of reinforced from the lmax experience was that um Synchronous programming is the crack cocaine of programming. It's kind of completely addictive and really bad for you on the whole. <laughs> Certainly at scale. But I, I think if you look, as you mentioned it in passing, but I want to reinforce the point. If you look at the real world, the real world is not synchronous. When we are talking to one another, you know, your brain is not freezing while I'm speaking and mine is not freezing, waiting to respond while you're freezing. We don't stop the threads. You're stop thinking about other stuff and you're probably thinking, oh, I'm going to go for a walk the dog later or something else if I'm being boring and, and planning what you're going to do later. And there's loads of stuff going on all of the time. Yeah. We're all just sending messages, um, asynchronous messages, really. And... I think that goes quite deeply. I, I'm 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 a physics nerd, and and I think you can you can you can think there's some theories of physics, fairly deep theories of physics that say that nearly everything is just information, and everything's just you know certainly the standard model of particles. You know you've got you've got force carriers that are essentially little messengers that take messages, although they're very very simple messages. Uh, you know, between uh, between other particles, and and I, I just, I, I think the synchrony thing we learn, we all learn it first, and that makes it feel safer. But yeah. actually, I, I I think it's wrong. And one of the things that we learned building the Elmat Exchange was that actually, you know, making everything asynchronous made our life hugely easier in terms of scalability and so on, but also that separation of the accidental and essential complexities. Exactly. That's why it's that third, you know, of the dimensions we mentioned of separation, yeah. that's the third dimension. We're decoupling the two things in time. Yeah. And means that whether we're using an actor model or a disruptor or uh, just, you know, Kafka messages, you know, between yeah. service A and service B, it's, it's all the same concept, which is, yes, I do my job A, and then I let somebody else know, and yeah. I'm done with that. Yes. Yeah. And then at some time later, maybe microseconds, maybe nanoseconds, maybe minutes or hours, you know, B receives the thing and reacts to it and so on. And like, I think it is very, very deep. Uh, yeah. I actually, I am actually a physics nerd too. So like, and you know, when you're, uh, I don't want to get too into it because it's kind of boring for everybody else, but the force carriers only go at the speed of light. Yeah. <laughs> right. So like there, I mean, like it's, you know, that's why relativity behaves in the goofy way it does. And we're still trying to figure out how to get quantum mechanics. <laughs> yeah. yeah. It's like it's you no know, uh it, it anyway, but uh but it does match the real world. It matches the real world of subatomic particles, like you say. Mm -hmm. It matches the real world of human to human interactions, like you say. Yeah. 
we are both parallelizing. Uh, you know, we're having a conversation. We're also doing potentially other things, certainly autonomic things in our, you know, yep. in, our, in our bodies. And I'm drinking my tea and all that kind of stuff. Um, but also, just to belabor the point, our conversation is itself asynchronous messaging, right? So yes. we're we when we started this, we figured out our delay is somewhere in the hundreds of milliseconds, <laughs> you know, between uh, my uh, you know because we're over a continent and an ocean, yeah. um, uh, between uh, between one another. Um, but also, it's literally I say a thing, and then it travels those you know tens of ten thousand miles or whatever, and then you hear that thing and you react to it, and then you. Yeah. You, know, you say back and so we're having a we would call this a synchronous conversation that we're yeah. having but it's actually made up of asynchronous messages yes and again and, and and all of them are at every, you know, at every level always that, that seems to be true there's no part of this that's synchronous right yeah 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 the tcp layer upon which we're having the conversation exactly the same like tcp gives us this oh there's actually a synchronous conversation there that's at that at that level of the network stack but actually that's not how it works it's yeah, yeah. You know, it, it's asynchronous packets going back and forth that get re uh you yeah. know that get uh reordered uh you know so that we have this illusion of synchrony anyway so pop 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 okay let's talk back to software architecture so it's not like i'm 100 agreeing with you it's not just yeah. Oh, when I get fancy, I'm going to do things asynchronously. It's like actually, if you really model your domain, yeah, it's asynchronous. Yeah. So what that does is that gives you a lot. It, like you say, it, you say it removes complexity. Um, yeah. I think that's absolutely right. It it makes us not have to think about a bunch of things at once, but it also gives us the flip side of removing complexity is it gives us more degrees of freedom. Yes. You know. So. Um, Again, as I gave a random example of somebody, not random, <laughs> the real world example, hopefully visceral example of somebody listing an item on the site. And then sometime later, it yeah. shows up in search and is available to be uh, bought or bid on by somebody else. Yeah. There are, when somebody lists a new item, there are order 10, there's one event that happens from that, uh, or a series of events, but like one you know item listed event. And then there are like 10 or 20 different entirely separate processes that get kicked off from that like oh okay let's take the image that she gave us yeah. and uh thumbnail it in all these different ways and then let's check it for various aspects of fraud because you know that's the thing and yeah. uh does you know blah 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 increment and decrement a bunch of stuff about her seller account because okay now she's sold a thousand things and you know like there's you know there's literally you know 10 20 different uh asynchronous you know, processes that are kind of kicked off by that event. Um, and again, just the the mental uh, freeing of being able to think of these things as separate ideas, yes. slightly connected in time, as opposed to it all has to happen in one. In one easier to test, easier to deploy, easier to manage, easier to scale. Um, 100%. 100%. Yeah. Things. Also, uh, since we're, you know, there's also... Um, decoupling the availability of the two things. So yeah, she, yeah. Can, or she can list her item, even if God forbid the search engine is down. Yes, yeah, yeah. <laughs> right? It's not, you know, it's, that's not a, there's no transaction that says, oh, well, she can only finish listing if I add it to the search engine and also check it for fraud at the same time. And I also thumbnail all the images and do all these other things. And that all happens in one atomic uh, go. That's not how, it, that's not how it works. Um, yeah. Yeah, and 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 uh, I I think that I think that that 
kind of big ball of mud, one you know, single go is almost the inevitable end point of that kind of synchronous thinking, unless you are experienced to be enough to have messed it up so many times that you're wary of it. If you just kind of walk into it, you almost inevitably end there. Yeah. Yeah. And we just have to give our, we just have to ask ourselves um, as we, as we hit a problem, as we hit a problem that's associated with scale, we have to ask ourselves all these questions. Yeah. Does really need to be the same component? Does A thing need to be transactional with B thing? Can we decouple them? And most of the, 95% of the time, the answer is yes, you can decouple them. Um, and uh, and then you, you go from there. And it's so it's so freeing because again, it makes it makes the individual components so much simpler and more scalable and more uh, more reliable and all that. So yeah, yeah. and and I, I think that one of the one of the freedoms that the that the asynchrony and essentially the the, the eventual consistency model that you that you you know or no consistency model one or the other is is that by not having you know, I think it's what you were touching on in your presentation when you were talking about the microservices first being more coupled allow you to move really quickly while you've got you know sources of truth and you can bring things together as you said in your ide you can spot where there are differences and so on but then as you learn where those boundaries are you can start to pull things out and you start using a more event-based organizing principle for the ways in which these things communicate and share information then essentially what you're doing is you're denormalizing the information you're denormalizing the data so that each bit has got a local copy that it can operate on i think in the presentation that i saw you gave an advan an example of um i can't remember which example it was now uh, but there was there was an order there was uh, uh, somebody with an with an account and they were adding some orders to their account yeah that, that will do well enough and so you know, you could have something else that's listening for the creation of accounts and the creation of orders and the association with orders of accounts to build to build the join, to build the picture that, that, that puts those together. And that's a copy of some of the information. So you yeah. need to you need to think about how that changes, but that's very natural in an event-based model. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, it's hard to yes, uh, I I one hundred percent yeah. So it's stitch fix where I, I also led engineering, you know it's a, a you know clothing retailer and so you know one of the ma the main like idea of customers is getting their preferences and sending them boxes of clothes and so uh the example in the stitch fix use case is we would send somebody an order which contained five items of clothing each of which they prefer or don't prefer right so like it you know it's itself a little like group of group of things and so yeah the um the example that you were talking about is we have events about, um, you know, the, the client has received the, the order. Okay, that's one thing. Like we shipped it and there's a whole event source, like what happens to, you know, we we picked it, we packed it, we shipped it, it got it arrived. Um, she confirmed it, you know, the client. Um, and then, uh, and there's a bunch of, you know, metadata associated with that thing. But then those each individual items itself also have, metadata about them right so there are pieces of inventory there, there's also like well she likes the blue dress she doesn't like black belt uh she you know somewhat likes the uh leather shoes you know whatever um and we want to join those you know we for reasons we want to join those things together and the way to do that is to have 
events that are about that order entity mm -hmm. that we're listening to, and then events about those item entities that we're listening to, and then a, a service that you know is listening to both those events and then yeah. re you know materializing that view essentially you know constructing that join uh, yeah. of the, those two things and then to your point we we can uh, very easily construct that here show me all my orders page essentially right for yes. current and for other use cases and like you say uh 100 that's a denormalization right that's a yeah. that's a cache that's a yeah. that's a you know there's there are systems of record about the orders and about the yeah. item and this <laughs> this materialized view over here is not the system of record for either of those things and also it's a totally useful uh model or entity in the system that we want to have right yeah. so um so we just have to you know so we construct it through we construct it and update it through listening to these events and then we we leverage it uh, you know we we use it you know to like paint the order page or whatever um and we uh, and we go from there but yeah i mean and and how do we get there it's because we we built up those things as individual components like that the customer there is an order for the customer there is an yeah. item for the those are yeah. real real physical things and then there's also this virtual thing of i want to show all the all the orders of for that particular customer or something like that like that's also a thing for the customer and so if that's a thing for the customer it's very likely that it should be a thing in our in our system right and yeah. so yeah and 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 uh, and that uh, you you said you said th th these are real things these these are not artificial constructs necessarily yeah. that we that we build for technical reasons they're part of the problem that we're solving they're things that we need to solve the problem that we're dealing with. we we did something very similar uh, in the lmax system where to kind of pull out the eventual consistency thing was I, I, very like eBay, I assume, is that, you know, at the point at which you're actually doing the auction, a, a market is just another form of auction in, right. in trading. So at that point, you want that to be fast and efficient and, and focused on prices, you know, clo close together. But actually the history of what orders of the, I dealt with or so on, that can happen sometime later. It doesn't matter if that's a few seconds being yeah. realized to be visible later on. If if you've just won the auction, you know, or you've just sold an item or whatever it is, it is that history can come a little bit later. It can be a little bit delayed, and yeah. and you know, you get you get these get these more much more nicely compartmentalized systems. Yeah, one hundred percent. And actually, to double down on that particular example, which is great. So the vast majority of eBay is eventually consistent to, to other parts of it. You mostly don't notice because again, at human scale, things are happening. You know, the machines are faster than we are. So for the most part, you, you don't notice that. But, and um, <laughs> I'm gonna keep throwing in new things. So there's the cap theorem, which is about yep. uh, the consistent or available in the face of partition. So Eric Brewer proposed this, you know, you can't have all three consistency, availability and partition tolerance, but yeah. the better formula formulation, which he would say is you are gonna be partitioned. <laughs> so yeah. when, when you're in a weirdo case, are you consistent? In other words, yeah. you block everything, but you might be down yeah. or are you up and potentially not consistent for some short period of time, right? Yeah. So eventual consistency is that AP solution. It's yeah. in of partitions we are available which means you know we're not consistent so this part of the system over here knows that she had the item or made the bid or whatever but this other part that you know paints the summary or whatever doesn't doesn't know that yet yeah right? okay 
the place or one of the very small number of places at eBay that is CP, consistent and uh, in the face of partitioning, but not available is exactly the auction. Yeah. The auction thing. Why? Because uh, the core part of the auction is that only one person can win. Yes. <laughs> and every bid, every people know this, but like every bid builds on the previous bid, right? Like I yeah. can, you know, if the current price is at 25, like my bid of 24, sorry, that, you know, that doesn't work. Uh, so, um, so there's a, uh, the problem domain tells us that it is needs to be serializable, that there's yes. all the bids that are coming in need to be put in a particular canonical order yeah. and dealt with uh, in that, in that order. So if at the end of an auction, as happens, like you quickly throw in a 29 and I quickly throw in a 28 and a half, even yeah. if my 28 and a half, or if, even if they arrive, uh, you know, in, in a different order, like there's a, there's a well understood, you know, way of like resolving that conflict. But if that particular slice of the system, that particular database, <laughs> relational database that like remembers that, that thing is down, we're all, we're done. Like yeah. that auction isn't happening you know, for in that moment. And we'll, we, we figure out other ways to deal with that, but, um, but we don't hide it. Um, if that makes any sense. So like, that's a place where, um, and this is exactly your point where the order book in way down a deep in, yeah, yeah. In the trading system is exactly that. Like it has to be single threaded. It, it, it has to be yeah. very deterministic. Um, anyway. So, yeah. 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 It, it's interesting stuff. Uh, so, so in, in general, would my, my I think that the consequence of one of the, the things that we were just talking about then is that apart from those very special cases, if we are talking about doing computing at scale, then AP is the is the more scalable route. That's 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 what most of the stuff we like it we we prefer it to be like, probably. Yeah. Yeah, 100 percent Yeah. Yeah. And um again, we're throwing a lot of terms at people, which I hope they'll, if they're not familiar with them, I hope they'll look up. But recognize that when we're saying AP, we're also saying we're equivalently saying eventual consistency and yes. we're equivalently saying event driven. Yes, yes, yes. I know you know that, but like, <laughs> <laughs> Dave and I have, listeners, Dave and I have used, um, you know, trying to come at the same idea and they're, and we're saying all the, we're saying 100% the all same thing. And Again, to talk about those rare cases, the 5%, 1% of cases where we really do need to be CP, we need to be serialized and ordered. That's where we use transactions. That's where that's yeah. where everything has to happen in a single component. And that's where if that particular component happens to be down in that moment, correctly, we we say, sorry, we yeah. can't, you know, we can't do this auction, right? Yeah. Uh, that's or we we can't uh uh take this order. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 Okay. Or, or, or single threaded with the disruptor, maybe it's just <laughs> instead of the transactions, but, <laughs> but synchronized, certainly. Yeah. 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 <laughs> so, so, so we've, 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 we've kind of, we've, we've probably been um, enjoying ourselves too much talking about our, you know, our favorite topics. There's, there's more favorite topics for us to explore. Um, so, 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 
beyond that, I, I think we've probably talked about some of the architectural things and the technical things that, that are, of scaling up a little bit. We've talked a little bit about the journey and, and those sorts of considerations and how those considerations change. What other kinds of problems do you face when working at eBay scale? Wow, lots of them. Um, I guess I'll start from, uh, so we not only have lots of pieces of software, we also have lots of people. <laughs> and we would like to make all of them more productive than they otherwise would be. So like 4,000 people, that's not one team. I mean, this is kind of obvious. Like I'm, you know, I'm almost making a joke. Um, and so therefore, uh, part of the organizational structure dual with the architecture at eBay is how do we figure out how to keep, how to make, every, how to use 4,000 people effectively, essentially. Mm -hmm. And so the modularization, information hiding, componentization, you know, idea where we break into these, that's like, that's why we have 4,500 services and applications, right? It's, it's uh, in many cases, it's because those individual uh, teams need to have this, you know, bounded area that they work in and they do their, they do their work in. Um, hopefully it's, it's independent of, you know, other people's work. Mm -hmm. Um, that's a, that's a big one. Um, I don't know what other, uh, what other things would you like to explore? Um, so, one, one of the places I'm interested in kind of taking this, I guess, is, is thinking about things like technical leadership, your chief architect and, yeah. um, vice president of engineering. So your, you know, it's your responsibility ultimately to kind of own the technical direction, presumably for, for, for many of these choices. So yeah, that's something that's something that I see so many organizations struggle with. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. We're still working on it too, actually. Um, that's the, which is the fun part of my job. Um, yeah. So I am the chief architect. What that does not mean is that every decision or even every architectural decision comes to me. Uh, <laughs> but just, to, I mean, like, but one might think otherwise, right? <laughs> I, does Randy approve all the things? Like, nope, <laughs> things Randy doesn't even know about. Um, but it is my job to make everybody, again, back to what architecture is all about. It's like enabling the teams to do, the teams and the engineers do their job more effectively than they otherwise would, right? And so the, my main focus is, is in this moment, honestly, less on an architecture or re-architecture of eBay and more on using continuous delivery principles to make the teams more productive, right? So um, that's actually what I what I focus on. And then the VP of engineering part of my job, my day job, if you like, is building and maintaining the developer platform that the those 4,000 engineers do to uh, use to, to do their jobs, right? So um, I'm in the platform and infrastructure kind of side of eBay's engineering uh, organization and my customers, my team's customers uh, are all the all the engineers that are building the customer facing applications and services essentially. Um, yeah. So we build we build and maintain the frameworks that we use. We use we're heavily users of heavy users of Java have been for 20 years, uh, heavy users now of Node for the front end stuff. Um, and my teams build and maintain those frameworks. My teams build and maintain the CI/CD uh, pipelines, you know. So we're, you know, make it a make it easy for teams to build and test and securify and, you know, uh, 
um, make accessible and all, you know make performant all the uh, all the uh, services and applications that they that they use. Um, one of my teams is responsible for the external APIs. So there are a bunch of third parties that you know leverage eBay um, programmatically, essentially to you know bid on you know to bid on things to buy things, mostly to add inventory to the site, all that stuff. Um, and um, I have a cross-functional program management organization that helps with you know big, hairy, you know, cross-domain, cross-organizational uh, programs. Uh, but essentially, my teams are enablers, right? So if you think, to, uh, you know, team topologies, my, my teams are all platform, te platform teams and enabling teams, right? Yeah. Um, yeah. So, yeah. So I guess one, th I don't know if this is where you wanted to go, but a thing at scale is you need to have that team, <laughs> mm -hmm. right? Um, and it's true, interestingly, the, the bigger you the bigger scale you are the larger percentage of your overall engineering investment is going to be associated with whatever what did you call it the platform or the infrastructure that yeah. type of thing um and so there are some companies that are at 40 50 60 percent of their engineering investment is one aspect or another of the platform why it's because as things get bigger it gets harder and harder to keep everybody productive and and it's more and more valuable to like the advantage to making them productive, the, the benefit of making them productive is, is that much, that much more. And so that, that means that, you know, the, the, the organizations that are effective at large scale, again, the Googles, the Amazons, Netflixes have all invested a lot, a huge percentage of their uh, engineering effort into making the teams that do the customer facing stuff more, more productive. I hope that makes sense. Yeah, it, it does. Uh, the, the the bit that I see large companies struggle with very often with with that is in sufficiently decoupling those platform services and so on from um, you know, application production. Uh, you know, yeah. How, how do you how do you what sorts of things? I'm I'm leading the witness because I, I I'm trying to set you set you up for to answer, for answering it with what's going through in my mind. But but um, so so what um, what sorts of techniques do you use to try to avoid you know one application team asking for a new feature from the platform and then forcing a change on another application team? That's a good one. Um... We're still learning to be better about that. Uh, to be perfectly frank, like we're not, you know, um, we're not perfect. Uh, we're we're still learning and getting better. Um, I will partially answer that question, then you can lead you can lead me in another direction. But um, philosophically, my team is just like a vendor inside of you. Like we all. Our paychecks come from the same place. We all have the same badges and the same color badges, whatever, you know, when we used to go into the office. Uh, and also the correct um, interface or the correct uh, 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 interactions between my team and the customer facing teams is like a vendor customer relationship. Yep. So, so now, that now answering your question, I'll reframe the question slightly. How does the platform team prioritize between various different things they could do. Because by the way, we're getting requests from, you know, the customer facing teams, we call them the product engineering teams or the domain teams. Yeah. We're also yeah. getting an e 
I wouldn't say an equal number, um, a larger number from the security group, from the infrastructure yeah. group, from uh, all that other stuff. And so we do have to prioritize among, among all those things. Uh, in that case, we put our eBay hat on and we look at all the, you know, we look at the kind of costs and benefits of those different things and what unblocks whom and uh, how important, that, you know, it's like important and urgent, that little two by two. Uh, what's in that, like both are important and urgent box. Like we kind of do, do that first. Um, so that's a little bit how we how we decide among the many competing competing things that, that we do. But if we can always keep that hat on about we're just a vendor. Um, no, so number one, that makes it a little bit clearer on uh, the product thinking that we could have. Like what would <laughs> what would an external vendor do, right? Like how would they approach this problem? Um, anyway, I, I lost my other uh, thought, which I'm going to come back to. I'm sure when I re remember it. Sure. So, so, so that, so, so, so the, I, I think one of the implications, I was, I, I, I'll ask it as a question because I'm not sure that you said this, but, um, but one of the things that I was taking from the way that you were describing that was um, working as a platform team, um, you are, you're not thinking that you're not specifically targeting end user function. You're treating application domain applications as your users, and you're yeah. servicing them. That's that's exactly. a couple. Exactly as you know, Amazon Web Services would do. Google, yeah, yeah, yeah. Heroku would do. Google App yeah. Engine, which I used to run engineering for, would do. It, yeah. you know, yeah. what what is it? What's the mental model of the developer platform? It's enabling, it's making easier the job of the individual developer. So that's you know that's our goal. Yeah. Um, yeah. I, so, I I I I led I, I led a, a much smaller team in in a trading company uh, a few years ago and. Um, one of the things that we used to say was our job isn't to force people to use our stuff. Our stuff, our job is to make stuff that's so good that everybody wants to use it. <laughs> oh, I say the same thing. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, the way I like to say it is our stuff must be strictly better for the yep. team than building it, buying it, borrowing it. Yeah. Yeah. For strictly better. Um, and yeah, I can go, I'll, I actually will go off on a small, small little rant about this because sure. it's very common for companies to um, build some shared service or some platform and implicitly or otherwise force everybody to use it, yeah. right? And that is, I 100% understand the emotion where that comes from, yeah. it, uh, but it's a sunk cost fallacy in some sense. Like it's, uh, it's well, we built this thing, we, we invested in you know, the XYZ platform, so you all, you all should use it. Um, the problem is that particularly at scale, it makes the incentives wrong yes. <laughs> because it, as a platform provider, I'm actually not incented to make the very best thing. Um, yeah. I, I could, I could do other things, you know, I mean, hopefully I'm a good person. I try to be a good person, you know, but like, but, but by having some, having a customer of mine, an internal customer of mine have the choice between using our framework or something else like yeah. that actually is the best incentive for them because they're choosing exactly the right thing to make their job better. You know, yes. They have full control over their uh, their lives essentially, and they can meet their customer their customers' needs, like eBay's external customer. 
Um, and it also gives me the proper incentives to, to do that. I'll say openly that eBay is kind of in the middle there uh, at the mm -hmm. moment. So um, we're more on the, I mean, we do have these common frameworks and we do strongly encourage people to use them because yeah. they get updated very regularly, you know, with, patched in all these different ways. They're actively maintained by, uh, by our stuff, um, et cetera. Um, so, uh, you know, so we make a big investment in those things and, and uh, but we do allow teams to go their own way, uh, yeah. but it's a burden on them because they have yeah. to, they have to, they, and some teams don't really fully appreciate, they're like, yeah, yeah, yeah. But like, they don't appreciate the long-term it's like free, free isn't a puppy. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Like, uh, uh, you know, that's, it's a big commitment to say, you know what we're going to do. I mean, there's nothing wrong with the examples I'm going to give, but like, we're going to build our thing in Python yeah. and okay. I mean, Python's wonderful. Like I shared an office with Guido at Google, like I, I mean, of the language. Uh, and also that's not what we support as, as part of our particular, you know, framework. Yeah. Uh, and so, all right, well, great. So when you decide to do that, it really better be better for you because now you're up for uh, upgrading Python. Now you're up for uh, fixing all the, um, uh, all the security issues. Now you're up for integrating with the monitoring system, with the deployment system, yeah. all those different things. Like you, this mythical other team that, you know, chose a different path you've taken on those responsibilities to do all that. So the way I like to say that, we don't really say this internally, but the way I like to, have liked to say this in the past is, you must be this high <laughs> to ride this ride. You must be this high to go your own way in the framework. Um, anyway, so, um, you know, a bunch of, bunch of organizations make entirely different trade-offs there. You know, um, Google is traditionally more, it is, it is a choice and also it is the very, very common choice for everybody to use the full yeah. suite of Google uh, services internally because they are just tremendously good. Yeah. Um, uh, we're maybe a little bit in the middle there, um, then way on the other end of the spectrum traditionally are places like Amazon where it's, you know, there's, uh, there's way more, just what I've heard, like it's way individual for the individual teams, you know, yeah. uh, way more, um, diversity in, in what they do. And, you know, these are all legit choices to make, but um, at the end of the day, a team that makes a choice that to do a thing, to like leverage a particular stack or a particular framework, yeah. they're taking on more or less responsibility based on whether they're using the kind of standard thing or not. Right. And, and, and it's, it's one of those, one of those things that, that, that you know, platforms are useful for, for kind of allowing teams to focus on you know the the essential stuff that they need to care about without worrying about that quite so much you, you, uh, organizationally it seems to me that you know a big organization you want some level of freedom for you know the heretic teams to be able to experiment with other things because contextually they might be right then what they're doing might be might be better or maybe they've got a problem that's different i I'm one of the trading companies i worked in we had a team that was building fpgas and and the off-the-shelf deployment pipelines that we were building didn't fit them very well so we we helped them but but they did their own thing largely so yeah but, you know th there's that kind of stuff but as you say you've got you know when you make that choice as a team you've got to recognize the whole gamut of responsibilities that you're taking on as a result yeah yeah so the seemingly contradictory but i think entirely compatible claims i'm making is that at scale you want to invest in a common yeah. platform or set of platforms because of the leverage that you get and also 
you don't want it to be to force people to use them use that because to your point it there's a there's an evolutionary there's like economic incentive for both sides to like well choose the right thing for my use case which may or yeah. may not be the platform um and then also how does the platform evolve if, if everybody's using it like you just decided you know, we, we pre-decided there was some, you know, if we do that, we pre-decide there's some monoculture and we never explore anything else. Yeah. So you know, the common industry phrase, which I know you've heard is the paved road or the paved path, right? Yeah. So, you know, Google and Netflix are both famous for, for that, for the choice of individual consumer teams to being able to, to choose what they use or not. And that has wonderful, again, that has wonderful, like long-term effects about evolving the, the evolving the thing i actually will give us some some ebay examples so um you know the majority of people use ebay through their mobile devices i certainly do right so our ios app and our android app and um only relatively recently have um the ui frameworks the the standard ui frameworks become really really rich so that's swift ui in the ios side that's jetpack compose on the android side um and so we are now so and we've had a mobile you know mobile app for whatever 15 years and so we built a bunch of our own stuff which is non-standard in the industry because the industry stuff was either not there at all or you know wasn't mature enough yeah. um to fully leverage now that has flipped where um where the industry stuff is pretty great and so we're now piloting with a couple of willing early adopter uh teams um leveraging you know swift ui and the ios uh, app for parts of it and jetpack compose for other parts of it and what they're seeing is there's a huge you know there it's uh it's very um they get a lot of productivity out of that but if we had continued to say uh, so it's great like so far the pilot looks fantastic it's a great experiment like we're looking forward to doing more and more um and my like mobile framework team is working closely with those things so there's no competition uh, no competition there although it is a choice right you know there's a choice yeah. for teams to bridge the, the a or the b um but that's but that has wonderful effects because yeah. now you know now the teams are able to leverage you know a bunch of industry knowledge and you know those things are now um you know they'll continue accelerating because there's way more investment in them but if we had forced as some organizations and even some people at ebay would have liked us to do um if we had forced teams only to use our framework uh for, and never explore the the new the, the new mechanisms uh we've made our things too rigid and we've given up major opportunities to be more productive and leverage yeah. other people's and I, um and as you said right at the beginning of our conversation it's all about the outcome you know that yeah at the, the, at the end of the day like no customer is saying well i really like I, you know i found a great deal on this thing but like i hate that you use jetpack compose what <laughs> no, said no customer ever right you know yeah. <laughs> uh, and actually in uh the other the other area that's super similar is uh is graphql so you know that's pretty yeah. standard in a bunch of and a bunch of different uh, a bunch of different areas developed at Facebook, leveraged at Netflix, and many other places. Um, we're, I guess, I'll call us the late the, the late majority. We're we're just starting to adopt uh, GraphQL. We've solved that problem in an entirely different, mm -hmm. uh, entirely different way. Um, and also, we're seeing wow, like it's super productive when we're able to leverage you know one of these other more industry standard things for lots of reasons. There's more tooling and more yeah yeah. yeah. Um, so so we've, sorry, I interrupted you. I just gonna. I was just completing the thought. So that's just another example of where, again, we could have been so rigid to say you can only use this 
kind of bespoke eBay technique to how to compose complicated stuff um, or, uh, you know, but that would have, we would have given up, you know, it's like Pennywise and Pound Foolish, like, oh, well, we yeah, made, yeah. we spend this thing, so we should like recoup that investment. And again, I understand the emotion behind that, but like, if you think long-term, you really put your eBay hat on, it's actually correct for us to be exploring you know, these other, these other things and, and when they're great, you know, experimenting with and piloting them and then um, leveraging them when they're, when they're really good. Yeah. 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 I, was, I, 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 I used, I, I used to see that anti-pattern of, you know, really rigid archi you know, dictated architecture from the top or yeah. you know, tooling from the top in, in, in banks and financial institutions very often. And, you know, we used to call, we used to call it architecture by golf course because some some bloke would go to the to the golf. It was nearly always a bloke. He'd go to a golf course and you know do some deal with the salesman from some software vendor, and and, and that's why the architecture was fixed that way. So let me let me just paraphrase the thing that I think that you're saying is is that really you know the technical leadership at that kind of level in a big organization is about establishing guide rails that are going to encourage people to to follow the path, but you're going to allow bungee jumping sometimes. <laughs> Yeah, one hundred percent. You you say it. You say it much better than than I did. But yeah, one hundred percent. The the goal again, pop pop pop. Our job is to is to is to solve customer problems yep. in a straightforward way that's sustainable for us as humans. You know, as as human engineers. Um, and by the way, if we can solve the problems without software, that's fine too. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Now, uh, so we our job as engineers is to is to solve problems, break them down, solve them, um, and so therefore we need to continually be open to you know different ways of okay the way that we solved it five years ago okay that was probably the you know it was a a good decision and it seemed legit at, at that time and now we have different options you know and so we yeah. we should be a little bit open not a little bit we need to be open completely open and humble about well okay if we made this decision you know in twenty twenty two. Um, what would we do? And okay, well, if that decision is different from the decision we made five years ago, all right, well, what does that mean? Do we start to like do a pilot of that new thing? How would those things interact together? You know, we have those conversations all the time. Yeah. So, so, so I, I know, I know that you're busy uh, working on improving your continuous delivery approach at eBay. Um, so let's talk about the Velocity Initiative. Um, yeah. Could you describe a little bit about about what it is that you're doing? Yeah, sure. Um, so I. Um, uh, I returned to eBay. So I was at eBay from 2004 to 2011 in a mostly individual contributor role. I spent 10 years doing other things, like you mentioned, uh, Google, Stitch Fix, WeWork, other places. And then I returned to eBay just about two years ago uh, in the middle or in the beginning of the pandemic. Uh, it felt like in the middle, but like <laughs> we're still in it. So like in the, you know, June, in June 2020. Um, and more or less what I came back to do was to help eBay modernize its software approach. Um, you know, so the problem statement is like, okay, we got 27 years of, uh, of software. We just want to be faster. We want to be able to, again, it's all about solving customer problems. We want to be able to solve those customer problems more quickly, more sustainably for our people, um, more efficiently, more effectively, et cetera, right? We want to both build the right thing and build the thing right. So, yeah. uh, that's there's universal agreement that that's a problem you know that we have and lots of other places have it too um and i was excited to come back and do that because i love ebay the company i love the people etc um also i feel like 10 years on i have more tools in my toolbox than i than i did before and so uh we put together what we call this 
the velocity initiative and like it, I kind of inherited the word. It's not the perfect word, but whatever. It, 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 it is what it is. Um, what it isn't is like everybody working harder. <laughs> so, <laughs> That's a good thing. <laughs> uh, but yeah, so the problem statement is we want to go faster through the product development life cycle. And uh, I did a quick, not quick, I did an initial set of what we call value stream maps in Lean. So I looked, we're a couple of different teams and like, tell me about your product process. Tell me, how does an idea become a project? How does a project become committed code? How does the committed code become a feature on the site? And then how do we iterate on that feature, you know, with analytics and experimentation and so on? And uh, very quickly, we discovered that the bottleneck at the moment for most of the teams at eBay is the software delivery part. So how does committed code become a feature on the site? And so that's all aspects of when a developer is done, what does it take for her excellent work to you know, make it to customers? And so um, we, uh, we did a, a pilot with about 10% of teams in 2021 and started applying all these continuous delivery techniques. So we worked in tight feedback loops between my platform and infrastructure teams and the, what we call the domain teams, right? The product engineering or like customer facing teams. Uh, and we would ask everyone on this simple question. So it looks like you're deploying, you know, um, we use the Dora metrics, which I'm gonna come back to. So yeah. on deployment frequency, you know, we look, uh, we, we will ask the team, hey, it looks like you're deploying, you know, once or twice a month. If I told you you had to deploy every single day, tell me all the reasons why you can't. Yeah, teams were were so excited to tell us all the reasons. Ten to twenty, ten to twenty uh, reasons. You know, oh, the builds take too long. Testing is too, it takes too long. Uh, staging environment's a mess. My tests are flaky. Uh, you know, uh, it takes a million years to roll stuff out to the site. Uh, I have to do manual security reviews. I've also, I mean, like tick, 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 all these different things. And unlike when the developers used to just, you know, legitimately complain about those things, uh, now I said, great, you just gave my team our backlog. Yep. <laughs> we just went through all of those um, impediments, you know, all of those blockers essentially yep. uh, to team being faster and started removing them one by one, either through automation, or helping the team change their processes or building new tools or something like that. So we, you know, we've, we worked on a bunch of those different things. Again, build time, startup time, uh, much better data and infrastructure availability in our staging environment. Um, we built a thing called, we call traffic mirroring, which that's our term, but like I've heard other people call it shadowing. So like mm -hmm. you, have, uh, you have a service that, a, a production service and you fire a request at that, and you also fire a request at the newer version that you're testing, mm -hmm. and you, then you compare the you compare the results. Like yeah. so, uh, obviously we would have we would have loved to have everybody have done uh, test driven development from the beginning and have a rich set of tests. But the open and honest thing is, after 27 years of software, there's a bunch of things that are lightly tested or not tested at all. Mostly those things are things that people aren't changing, but neither yeah. here nor there. Um, but anyway, so this traffic mirroring allows us to like black box essentially test, hey, when we made this framework change or, you know, fix the security vulnerability, did we actually change, you know, the outside uh, behavior of it, of it at all? And, and that really helped us. And then we built, uh, um, this is standard technique, is we always had staged rollout for 20 years, you know, we've been able to roll out things you know, to the site in a staged way, but a developer always had to click the button to go from one stage to another stage. Yeah. And 
uh, well, what was the, what is the developer doing? She's looking at some graphs and she's deciding, oh, everything looks good. Okay, it's ready to move to the next stage. And so the obvious thing, which we did is we put our cool monitoring system together with our, with our cool stage rollout system. And we built a canary capability, again, standard in the industry where, you know, just looking at the metrics, it automatically rolls it out. And if there's an issue, it rolls it back. So all those, all those techniques allow us to, you know, just go that much faster. And, um, and we started to see the, we started to see the results. So, you know, the quick punchline is after a year of working with those 10% of teams, um, we were able to double their productivity. Uh, what does that mean, productivity in this context? Um, it's not the perfect measure, but it's maybe the best measure. It's a measure of flow. So uh, it used to be that a given team with the same size and same composition could produce X number of features and bug fixes in a certain period of time. And now they can produce 2X. Yeah. So we've been able to double their ability to you know, deliver software. Um, and oh, by the way, again, I know you know this, but like by reducing the difficulty of going through that software delivery process by automating more things, making them quicker and easier and so on. We reduced the transaction cost of doing deployments, which actually which made it easier for people to do more deployments and also reduce the batch size, right? So now the yeah. optimal batch size uh, of uh, doing one of those things is smaller. So it means that we're doing smaller units of work. They fit in people's brains. Uh, we can roll them out easily. We can roll them back easily. When we roll them out and there's an issue, because that happens a lot of the time, we know what it is because we only changed one or two things, right? Uh, yeah. As opposed to the, the previous thing where like you batch up a month's worth of work for an entire team or two weeks worth of work and you got a hundred changes in there and like goodness knows what, you know, something breaks and it happens, um, you know, who knows what it is and you have to roll the whole thing. Anyway, so, you know, smaller units of work are, are better in all, in all situations. So we started doing that. Teams are moving more toward from a branch oriented strategy to trunk-based development. Um, there are a few teams that are piloting, one team that's piloting uh, pair programming, it, uh, reduce the lead time around the code review process. Um, uh, yeah, so that's where we are. Great. This, this, from my point of view, there's quite a lot of motherhood and apple pie in that stuff. It, it all sounds fantastic. Uh, but, uh, but, but, the, but the stuff that I, you know, I, I would, uh, the kind of stuff I talk about on my YouTube channel all the time and 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 you know, advise people to do. It's always nice though to hear about you know that it really works. I, 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 I've yet to meet anybody that's actually made this journey that's made this transition that would ever want to go back to the old way of doing things. Oh 100 percent yeah I mean the teams are so much I mean the the improve the the um, productivity improvements are more or less self-reported by the by the teams. Yeah. Um, and again, I mentioned those DORA or Accelerate metrics, right? Yeah. Which is fortunately, I suppose, our problem today is software delivery because there's a whole book and state of DevOps, state of DevOps uh, surveys and research that tell us how to improve software delivery. Um, and yeah, so we've been able to, we've focused on the, the speed metrics, the deployment frequency and the lead time for change. Um, and exactly as uh, Dr. Forsgren's research would tell us. And what happened is by moving those speed metrics, we also moved the stability metrics. Yeah. Uh, we're already quite good actually on the um, change failure rate. We were down at, you know, call it one to 2% overall, but now we're way below 1%, you know, for the teams that have adopted these, again, smaller units of work, more automation, et cetera. And then we've reduced the, the um, 
uh, time to recover uh, as uh, by about two to three X as well. Again, it was pretty good to start with and, it, and it's even better now. So yeah. yeah, we were able to move. So what was great is we saw that doubling of the end-to-end -end flow or the end-to-end -end productivity of the teams, but we were able, we moved those accelerate metrics pretty substantially. So most of the teams we when we started, they were like medium performers in uh, deployment frequency and lead time. So say they were um, deploying, let's call it twice a month and uh, with 10 days of lead time, and now they're deploying twice a week with two days of lead time. Yeah. And again, there's way more to go, right? So the, you know, the ideal, and both of us have experienced it, is you know, deploying multiple times a day with like an hour lead time. So yeah. there's a ways to go, but um, already, already you know, just moving from that medium performer level to the high performer level, let alone the elite level, yeah. um, huge improvements in the team's ability to get their work done. They're having so much more fun uh, and it's better software. It's just better software. So we're doing our job by our customers, you know, a lot better. Yeah. Uh, yeah. It's, 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 it's great. It's great. It's great to hear um, that it's, it's having that impact. It's not surprising, <laughs> but it's, but no, it's yeah, I mean, like pilot, I always put that in quotes in my head because we knew it was going to work, Yeah, uh, but legit, we needed to prove to people at eBay yeah. uh, that, okay, yeah, you can, oh, sure, there's this book and whatever, but like, that's not our software. That's not our problem statement. That's our, yeah. you know, the legitimate skepticism that it hadn't been proven at eBay. So the pilot was yeah. really all about developing those proof points at eBay. And also, frankly, like, we didn't just like walk in and turn a dial. Like, again, like I said, we asked the teams, what's blocking you? And yeah. there were things, like real things that were, you know, problems and, uh, and we, we, we solved them or we helped, you know, collaborating with those teams to, to solve them. Um, teams a lot solved a lot on their, on their own, by the way. Um, yeah. so yeah, so now we can go to teams and go, Hey, uh, there's still a lot of those conversations about what's blocking you. And there are still more blockers for yeah. even those teams, but the new teams that we're bringing in, um, but here's a, but now we can say, here's a playbook, like, okay, with your technology use, you know, Leverage deployment pipeline. Use, uh, you know, use this to tune your uh, build times. Use this yep. to tune your times. Uh, use this again. Traffic mirroring capability, canary capability, uh, etc. So you know, so now we we've built up all these, you know, again this playbook or these tools and um, uh, tools and capabilities for for teams to use. Um, yeah. I I, I think that the Accelerate book is is one of the most important books that's happened, at least in the last 10 years. Um, yeah, because it puts us on an engineering footing. It gives us it gives us a way of just starting to use these metrics as genuine tools for the kind of improvement that you've described. 100%. In fact, I so agree. I actually said almost that exact phrase in another interview that I just recently did. I think 100% that Nicole, Dr. Forstgren's work here is the thing in the last 10 years, 100%. Yeah. I can't think of any more imp impactful research book uh, resource that as engineering leaders and engineering practitioners, we, we would use. Yeah. Um, it's at the level of the patterns book, in my view. It's, yeah. it's, a, ga it's a gang of four level like uh, stuff. And a lot of us knew and practiced a bunch of those techniques before she wrote the book. She wouldn't say otherwise. She didn't invent anything. But the careful and scientifically correct analysis that she did, like the whole second half of the book is, hey, yeah. skeptic person, here's the science behind why all these things work. And you can yes. believe it. Uh, and that's revelatory because um, uh, 
because it convinces the you know people that are on the skeptical or like laggard part of the adoption curve. But also, frankly, just simply the four, you know, there are more metrics in there, but like the four metrics that we talked about, the deployments, frequency, lead time, change failure rate, and MTTR, like we're not having conversations with teams about how to measure their develop delivery performance. We're saying these are, you know, you should read the book and, you know, I encourage you to do that, but like yeah. these are the proven uh, things that indicate, you know, how well we're doing as, a, as, an, as an organization. And we're going to measure those, and we're going to um, we're going to look we're going to use those measurements as opportunities to figure out what to improve. Um, and that accelerated us from debating <laughs> debating the measurements because there's a million debatable, mostly bad measurements about productivity and, yeah, yeah. All, that, and all that kind of stuff. Uh, and she just accelerated us all, <laughs> pun not intended, uh, <laughs> right past um, right past all that. So I, I think we all owe. Nicole, Dr. Forsgren, a huge debt. Indeed, I think it's fantastic work. And and to kind of close the loop from where we started our conversation, um, I think it's one of the things that's... I, I think in the last 10 years, I've been seeing a genuine a genuine move towards something that feels more like an engineering discipline and less like craftsmanship if i'm honest craftspersonship i i think that we are um you know we've got some tools that we know work and we and when we wield them we get better results uh, and and that's that's what you'd expect from engineering it's it's not it's not proof it's not going to give you a you know a guarantee of success but it's going to improve your chances of success markedly you know yeah. if, if you're using the right tools and, yeah. and I don't I don't mean that in, sen in the sense of compilers. I mean, in the sense of these ideas like, like you know, like the Dora metrics and so on. Yeah. And all the and all the all the techniques associated with continuous delivery. And yeah. we didn't even talk about this and we shouldn't because we were running out of time, but like transformational leadership and like culture, because like it's yeah. not just about technical practices. It's about, oh, by the way, <laughs> teams have to be able to say the truth, you know, speak truth to power and like, absolutely the people's opinions. And I mean yes i mean 100 but like I, I know you know this but just i think people that you know are maybe new to this industry that are just kind of experiencing this now it's like oh this is obvious well it was obvious that these techniques were good things we yeah. had no proof until dr forskin's work that yeah. they were we had anecdotal evidence but 40 years of research into Pre, <laughs> pre Nicole, forty yeah. years of research into software delivery, and and like nobody could find any. Um, she says this, like nobody could find any correlation or causal causal relationship between the various kinds of investments and and engineering outcomes. And she yeah. was able, to, you know, she and everybody involved in the state of DevOps uh, surveys were able to figure out a way to, um, you know, uh, separate it. And like that's the that's the absolute brilliance that like stepped the entire industry up. So um, I'm 100% agreeing with you that I think now we are on a much more scientific slash engineering footing as an yes. industry. Uh, and I, I don't say this lightly, like it's Nicole. She brought us here. Yeah, yeah, yeah. She showed us the way. Um, and I, again, like I say, I think we should be all incredibly grateful for that uh, because now, oh, survey methodologies and science actually works as applied to, as applied to software yeah. as we hoped but couldn't 
figure out for four decades, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And, and I, I, as you say, for, for, for people that are kind of relatively new to the industry, I, I can, I can very, well, I, I'm fairly sure he's written it down, but I can remember having conversations with Martin Fowler and, and him saying it's not possible to measure software teams. I think we all thought that. I think we all believed that. I did too, because yeah. there were all these, not because we didn't know that there were practices that worked better yeah. or worse. We knew that, but we couldn't prove it because we didn't have an output. We didn't have, actually, we didn't have outcome metrics yes. or even output metrics. Well, we, all we had was output metrics. All we yes. had were lines of code and function yes. and like all the like deeply gameable, horrible uh, metrics that measure actually nothing. Yes. Um, and what uh, the beauty of this research is they were she and the research group were able to find those engineering outcomes distinct from the customer outcomes. So we were like, how do you measure yes. team? Did you satisfy the customer? And like, I yes. still believe, but yes. we were like, there's nothing in between the practice of the stuff that we do. And there's no in, in between measurement that we believe, right? Between yes. stuff that we do, <laughs> inputs that we put into you know our team and our process and outcomes that we get in terms of customer satisfaction. But what she's shown, and again, that causal relationship among all those things, the brilliance is these engineering outcomes as measured by the four, the four metrics that we talked about, yeah. that isn't, these are my words, some, an interim step where we can, and sometimes proxy metrics, and I mean that in a good way, mm -hmm. proxy metrics that we can work in tight feedback loops toward improving those, yes. improving failure rate, improving our deployment time, improving our lead time, and the research shows that if we do that, we are guaranteed. There is a causal relationship yes. between making improvements to those engineering outcomes and the real customer outcomes that we that we care about. And yeah. I love that you that you quote all the time, which I'm now starting to do, which is the teams that do really very well on these things are do 44% more real work, like 44% work on yeah. feature work on features as opposed to maintenance or bug fixes or something like that. And again, I know you know this, but like. The research shows uh, that, uh, you know, the, the organizations that do this have better productivity, better profitability, better market share. Yeah. Um, and you need only think of the engineering organizations that you like admire <laughs> out in the world, you know, again, the Amazons, the Googles, the Netflixes, et cetera, of the, of the world. Um, and they're the one, I mean, <laughs> they're, they're proof points about like um, investing in, Investing in platforms, investing in these techniques, actually doing these practices for serious, um, they make a big difference. So yeah, it, it, it's huge. I, 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 you, you say you saying about them being kind of proxy metrics, and and they are, but they're proxies for things that really matter. You know, the the, the you know, stability measures the quality of the work that we produce. Throughput measures the efficiency with which we can deliver work of that quality. That those are things that matter to everybody. You know whatever yeah. it is that they're building, so 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 they're they're difficult to gain. They're not the real value. I, I'm I've been reviewing a book. I, I'm writing a foreword for a book that's written by a friend of mine uh, about SRE uh, and the adoption of SRE in a, a non Google big environment. Um, and 
Um, I, I think that might be the other part. That, that, that might give you the framework for that other set of metrics in terms of, you know, I'm building this feature. What are the object, what are the indicators that I need to monitor in order, in order to be able to determine whether the service is good, the kind of you know, your canary, you know, measure or whatever else, or take sure. that further. And what level of objective is, am I setting for this or this thing on that measure and using those as tools to get to more kind of hypothesis driven development and apply that engineering just a little bit further in terms of testing the customer impact as well as the technical measures. I think I think most people think about SRE in terms of you know uptime and all that kind of stuff, which is fine. But I see no reason why you can't apply the same thinking to does it make my customer trade more or whatever else. Yeah, 100%. And again, there's a whole nother podcast in this conversation, but just to quickly 100% agree and underline all the things that you say. Uh, yeah, SRE, I mean, people might think that SRE is about only uptime and availability. Um, I Respectfully, you're wrong. No, I, uh, yeah, I know. I, yeah. I do know that. I know you know that. <laughs> but that's way too simplistic. I mean, again, yeah. SRE is an engineering discipline as applied to all aspects of reliability and system performance, et cetera. I know you know that. Um, and so the service level objectives that are that that bring together those things, how do I express in quantitative ways the, a good customer experience? And like, yeah, that's like you actually have to use your brain and, and yeah. think about it. Like, oh, going through this, uh, we're actually implementing a bunch of these things at, at eBay right now, early days, but like it looks yeah. great. Um, uh, how long does it take for a customer to, you know, get through this checkout flow? Yeah. You know, all those, you know, all those seemingly technical measures um, do actually measure when done properly. Uh, we can actually measure aspects of the customer experience, uh, whether it's error or performance or whatever, um, that really matter. Um, yeah, as a hint to your reader. So I also am doing a blurb, not a foreword for Vlad's book. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so that's exactly, I know. Uh, and when that comes out, um, I'm going to be strongly recommending it. It is just tremendous, tremendous. Yes. The book on implementing, implementing SRE. So that when that is out, um, we'll be we'll be talking about that one too. Yeah, definitely. Uh, out later this year, no doubt. <laughs> Um, I, I, I think we should probably think about wrapping up. We've been, we've been talking for a long time, and I know I, I know you're a very busy man, and and up ridiculously early at this <laughs> at this point. Although normal for you because you're so busy. But anyway, I, I'd like to I'd like to thank you uh, profoundly for having the conversation. I've really enjoyed it. I hope you have too. But I, I, I yeah, I, I've I've had fun. It's been it's been really good. Oh, me too, Dave. I. Uh just what a, what a pleasure to get a chance to hang out with you and chat about these things. But um, as you can see, like both of us are really passionate about all this stuff and just like, <laughs> we're tripping over each other, like to just to, to add to the conversation. So this is one of the, you know, this is one of those conversations I, I really like and enjoy. And, and I'm really grateful to you to, for having me on a uh, big fan, as I mentioned in the beginning of your, your channel and all the work that you do. So uh, please keep it up. And I'm, I'm honored to be a part of it. Well, uh, I'm honoured for you to have taken part in it. So thank you very much. Uh, as a wrap up to everybody, thank you very much for uh, for watching. Uh, I hope you've enjoyed it. Um, 
uh, I, I'll re reiterate my thanks to Randy for, for, for taking part. Uh, fascinating uh, to, to learn all of those things. Um, I'll put some links in the description below to follow up on any of the stuff, some of Randy's talks and, and, and any other things that seem appropriate, and we'll put a timeline into. Thank you very much. Hit like if you enjoyed it. Bye-bye.